So welcome to Rustship. Rustship is the podcast for developers who ship Rust code. I'm your host, Marco Iani. I'm a Rust developer and I enjoy to talking to other people, especially Rust developers and uh, yeah, especially about Rust. Um, so here we are. This is episode number four and we have Dennis Cobbert and Yvonne Chambers. Uh, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. <laughs> so I... Hello. Yes. Yeah. Glad to be here. Thank you for the invit invitation. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's a pleasure. Thank you for accepting. So Kivon is a graphics engineer and is the founder and the designer of Graphite, while Dennis is a computer science student and uh, is a Graphite maintainer. So I, I came across Graphite because Prickshit, uh, which, which is a, a listener of the podcast, uh, he said like, Oh, you, you should interview uh, these guys. They're awesome. They, their project is like uh, very interesting and also is very beginner friendly. Uh, so like he said that the experience of uh, contributing to to Graphite was uh, was great for him. So I will definitely ask you uh, how you you make your project uh, contributor friendly and, and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. That is feedback uh, that we've gotten from a number of users over the, over time has been that people have really found it a lot more approachable than most open source projects that they've that they've tried to com uh, to contribute to. So we're, yeah, we're proud I'll to definitely... put that effort into making it. It's hard. It really is hard to to make it accessible. I will definitely ask about it this later. Yes. Uh, so yeah, like in general, I have to do a big disclaimer. I like I know almost nothing about uh, graphics and this kind of stuff, but uh, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to ask questions so that also the audience uh, will understand uh, this project even without having this kind of background, or at least this is my hope. We'll see how it goes. So yeah, uh, again, thank you uh, both for uh, be being here. And I will start by asking you to introduce yourself. Maybe you can start, Kivon. Who are you? And uh, yeah, in general, what's your background and why you started Graphite? Yeah, so I'm Kevin Chambers, and I basically have been straddling the line between an artist slash designer and a programmer and engineer my entire life. Um, and it's always sort of that creative instinct in how to make technology, make creativity uh, easier and more powerful and a more creative process ultimately. Um, so for a long time, since I was very young, I've been learning Blender and Unity and Photoshop and Illustrator and um, just sort of making digital art to uh, use those tools essentially to <laughs> to uh, cover for my handicap with like physical art and hand drawing, which I'm okay at, but certainly not at all great at. Probably in the time that I spent learning the technology, I could have learned to, you know, the classical art techniques and just been, been a traditional designer or a traditional artist and illustrator. Um, but I like technology. So um, Graphite ultimately has been grown out of sort of a decade-long idea in my head and sort of a concepts that have evolved over time as to how we can improve things. I've always, I basically got into software development and software design from the perspective of using software and deciding that I could have done better. I could have designed it in a better way uh, whenever I run into any sort of confusion or badly designed features or a UI that just stinks. I've always been inspired to 
build something better. And that's how I taught myself programming, um, how I got into computer science and um, also into software design, because turns out that software design is the kind of thing that most programmers actually don't really think about because they're more focused on the engineering and the code and the concepts uh, and less on the user perspective. But I think what I bring to the table here is that I really think a lot intuitively about the user perspective uh, and then bridging that gap with the engineering perspective as well. So being able to design software that's usable and also is able to be built because it is physically possible to fit the concepts that need to be built into computer science terminology and um, ultimately an architecture that I helped design um, and building all of that into ultimately a product. So that's kind of my background. Um, uh, also just sort of biographic information, uh, went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, graduated about a year ago with my master's degree uh, and also did my, my bachelor's degree there as well. Um, and started this project basically about three years ago, two and a half years ago from a code perspective, um, and maybe three to four, probably four years ago from a design perspective where I just started building the product design, um, starting with a mock-up and creating a, you know, a high fidelity pixel perfect mock-up of the UI, which has evolved over the time um, that I've been working on it quite considerably, actually. If you look back at the old concepts, they really look terrible. It takes a long time to evolve a design into something that looks much better and um, fits the concepts that are needed. And you do sort of have to work back and forth between the code and the design, because when you're doing that, um, you can't foresee everything you'll need until you have some of it implemented. And then also you do still need the design to lead the development forward as well. So you kind of have to go step in, uh, you know, left, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot with the design and with the development. Um, yes. And then uh, I think that covers the most of the background. Did I forget anything? Yeah, no, I think it was uh, pretty exhaustive. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that um, having a designer point of view and uh, like caring about the user, uh, the user interaction with your product benefits uh, a lot software. And probably this is something that some open source projects lacks. And so it's great yes. that from day one, uh, this is into Graphite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sort of the success of Blender has been the motivation because we've seen there is precedent. It can work. A designer-focused program that's actually quite pleasant to use. Well, it, it has improved over time, It I guess. Um, was confusing to most people in the past, but it has improved considerably. Um, but being something very designer focused and still open source, that is sort of a, a beacon in the dark amongst most, you know, the vast majority of open source projects that unfortunately are very, they're very programmery design as opposed to usery design. Um, and I'm hoping that we can continue to be a, a force for good in that world of um, trying to show why it's important and why it's possible to make something that is designer focused as opposed to being kind of the um, being driven by the perspectives and the, the decisions of just a programmer perspective. Unfortunately, there are far too many open source projects, <laughs> Linux, for example, <laughs> that is um, too embedded in the concepts of what programmers think of, but not what is intuitive to a user who didn't program that system themselves. Yeah, we were think we were talking about this in the previous episode with Ellie, that like Terminal, for example, they are like the same since, I don't know, 40, 50 years. And so yes. new joiners struggle with it. Yeah, that's great to see. 
something, uh, some improvements in this space. Yeah. Um, what about you, Dennis? What's your uh, background and how did you get into graphite? Yeah, so that's actually quite an interesting story. Um, I'll first of all start with how I got into programming itself. So I am the son of two engineers. And with this sort of engineering tinkering background, that's what I used to do. Like on the shelf behind me, I have, for example, like a Geiger counter I built in like seventh grade or something. Of course, all you users can't see that now. <laughs> and other things that I've built over the years. And for me, it's always, I have a problem and I want to come up with the solution. I work through the steps, then I implement it by actually building the thing. Then I have a good result. Like I have something that works. And that's very satisfying, this loop of, I know there's a problem, I want to solve it, and now I, I have solved it, I have the solution. And um, well, the issue as a teenager is you have limited financial resources and time resources. And at some point I figured out that if I just make up a, my own software problem, I can build a, develop a software solution, implement that for free. I don't have to wait for shipping time and spend money on components to build things. I can just program software and it's free. And that's, it's kind of a quicker iteration cycle. And that's sort of what we got into software pro programming basically in software design. And from that point on, I basically didn't stop. I, um, after high school, I wasn't quite sure what major I should pick in for college. And um, I was sort of thinking physics, maybe chemistry, maybe biology, maybe maths. Um, I also still have like um, a laminar flow chamber in my room here in my student apartment and still have a cupboard full of chemicals and physical components and electric, like a bunch of, well, just electronic components to build stuff out of. And that's still, I still do those things, but I figured that in all of those branches, I would always want to sit at the interface between the computer science and the actual science. And that's why I decided that for now, I'll just study computer science and then I can still do the interfacing with the actual natural sciences. And that's how I, well, decided to study computer science. And a couple of years ago, I um, stumbled upon a random Twitch stream. It was called the Rust Game Dev Meter. And I had the, spent the last year um, with a friend developing a game you know, it's sort of a meme in the Rust community that there are like 50 game engines and three games. We, of course, developed a game engine because we didn't want some use to use something pre-made. We set ourselves the extra challenge to do it in WebAssembly. And at that point, doing things in WebAssembly and also doing it in a performance-sensitive manner, like performance-critical, that was very hard to do. And we worked through a lot of issues. And our main stick was that we um wanted to implement multi-threading for our game it was called atatosk it's a NITOG clone basically and we jumped through a lot of hoops to get that actually working and then i was there watching this random twitch stream and there was keven proclaiming that of course 
um, multi-threading on the web is impossible. And that's that's why graphite can't use multi-threading. And I, I, well, that's just wrong. So I <laughs> uh, joined the Discord afterwards and we spend the, the night um, basically going over the entire application design. And I, of course, I also, I love doing image editing. I do also, I'm also a photographer in my free time. And this is fascinating to me. I do love Rust. It's programming language, programming language. I just, well, I don't like the currently available image, image editing software on Linux because I now use Linux as my main operating system. So Graphite sounded like a great prospect. And I just joined the Discord and we basically spent the night coming up with the entire application architecture. It has now somewhat changed, but some of the original structure is still in place. That's basically how I joined the project. Yes, yeah, so you, basically you joined... it's employing Cunningham's law to get the best answer uh, on the internet, not to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer. Basically got to do that <laughs> to attract open source competitors, open source contributors. Exactly. I was saying the, the same thing that Dennis joined Graphite to prove someone on the internet that he was wrong and he, he was yes. he was right. Yeah, <laughs> it's cool. Okay. So yeah. So like, what's what's Graphite? Um, yeah. Assuming that the audience knows very little about yeah, graphics. Yeah, we're trying to basically build the all-in-one 2D graphics editor for all sorts of graphic design digital painting, illustration, um, page layout, kind of everything that you would use any sort of 2D software for. Most of those are um, the Adobe software, such as Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign. Uh, someday even we'll do animation, so you might know of After Effects, and there's also a number of other uh, animation tools from other companies as well. Um, in, in the open source world, there's GIMP, there's uh, Inkscape, so GIMP is a raster editor, Inkscape is a vector editor. And vector graphics, basically, you can think of it as like clip art or anything that is based upon just solid shapes, or maybe shapes with some subtle gradients applied. Um, but they're not images that are generated with a camera, because those are encoded into pixels. And that's called raster, when you have pixels that make up an image. Um, or when you're just drawing with a paintbrush, those are going to be built as pixels. Whereas vector is more about those shapes that you can make illustrations with, or graphic design, or um, also like laying out text because text is ultimately composed of curves. All of that is referred to as vector, whereas raster is anything that's based upon pixels. And at the moment, in the in the software market, whether that's open source or proprietary, um, all of those tools usually are segmented by just focused almost entirely on vector or just focused almost entirely on raster. And then even within those categories, you have things such as like desktop publishing or page layout. If you're designing a pamphlet or a book or something that's going to go to print and you need to put content such as text together with images and, um, and other sorts of content, that's typically going to be using a, um, a digital publishing application. So such as, uh, such as Adobe, so Adobe InDesign. Um, and then there are some open source alternatives, but they probably aren't worth mentioning because no one uses them. Uh, they are strictly inferior, unfortunately. There's Scribus, for example, which is quite widely used, I think. Yeah, but 
I, my understanding is that Scribus is not quite up to the task of most work in the industry. So people just always will use InDesign. Um, but basically it would be really good to have that built into another open source program that also lets you do the graphic design. So you don't have to do graphic design separately and then import it into your desktop publishing application. And then if you're doing any raster work, so anything that involves a photo or painting or complex effects that can't really be represented as mathematical curves, doing all that design in the same program that you're doing your page layout for, if you're working on a book or a pamphlet or something, um, having all of those tools in one program would be very useful. And at the moment, there is sort of this artificial segmentation in the market of different tools, whether that's again, open source or those provided by Adobe or from other um, others like Affinity Designer and Affinity Photo and Affinity Publisher, I believe, are the three different products that do um, mostly graphic design and vector stuff, mostly photo editing and mostly desktop publishing. Um, and then finally, animation is something that we'd like to eventually get to as well, because there are a bunch of different tools that do animation. They're mostly focused on that but we would like to be able to have those as part of the same tool that you're already doing your 2D design. So if you're working on any kind of motion graphics video or something like that, um, or even just something very simple, but you want to do something that involves time, um, you know, something that involves motion, that will require typically that you do your design, all the, all the graphics themselves in a vector editor, and then move those over to your, uh, to your animation tool, import those, turn them into something that can be used and laid out in a scene and then do your animation in that. And then if you ever have to make any changes to the design, to that actual artwork before it gets animated, you got to go back to your vector editor, make changes, and then go back to your tool. And that's actually a big reason that people really love the Adobe products and why I love it for, frankly, for that matter as well, is that even though they are separate tools, they at least have really good interoperability between them. You can double click on a layer in After Effects and open up the Illustrator file in Illustrator and then make your changes and hit save and it will automatically sync those changes back to After Effects. Same with if you're working in Photoshop on a document where you've imported something from Illustrator. Double click on that, brings you to Illustrator, make changes, save it, and it automatically syncs back to that. But the only thing better than having nice syncing between products is having one product that does all of, your, all of the things. And then if that can be open source, that would be doubly awesome. So that's kind of the very ambitious goal is to build all the 2D workflows into one program. And that's actually something that Blender has done very successfully. In the 3D world, there is modeling, there's sculpting, there's texturing, there's UV unwrapping, there's animation, there's uh, weight painting, there's rigging, there's, um, uh, I think I already said animation, but there is um, uh, rendering, look development, shader development, um, and I'm sure there's a bunch more that I'm forgetting, but all of those are different things that you might, yeah, and oh yeah, compositing at the end. All of those are things that you might do in separate tools, or even in Blender's case, even um, taking your final videos and then compositing, compositing them together in a in a Lee editor, so you can combine the clips together and do video editing at the end with audio, you know, adding audio tracks, adding video tracks together. Um, all of those are built into Blender because they wanted to have the entire workflow under one roof. And that works really, really well for them because they don't quite have that interoperability problem, which other programs that only focus on a specific thing work on, um, because you just do it all in one program and you have a very, very seamless workflow. So that worked well for Blender. And the other thing that really worked well for Blender is that they were trying to work on not just 
trying to catch up to other tools, but they were actually innovating and bringing out brand new concepts that no tool had ever built before, such as a real-time viewport that displays your actual final render in real time. So you can actually work in the viewport and have that render as you work. So you know exactly what your render is going to look like as you build your scene. That was something that really no other software meaningfully did, um, not part of the tools, at least, not part of the tools you could use to model and sculpt and change your scene and build your shaders. Um, and that's just one example out of dozens or maybe hundreds of things that Blender actually innovated with. So the way that they succeeded was actually to build something that is new and something that is compelling, not just something that is always trying to perpetually catch up to the others. Um, so we're taking the same approach here is we want to bring things that are new and are innovative and are actually very exciting, um, not just simply try and catch up and copy all the other things that other people are doing. So in our case, what we're bringing to the table is the node graph. And I think I'll cover this in more detail later because I don't want to go mm -hmm. too long on this one topic. But the node graph is very briefly a way of encoding all of your artwork, all of your creative decisions, everything you've done to build your project, um, to build your 2D art, encoding that not quite as data or curves, but not sorry, not quite as pixels for raster or curves across various layers uh, for vector. But instead, you're encoding this as kind of like a program. You're encoding it as a big flowchart of functions, of operations that combine together in a node graph and build the thing that renders into your artwork. And then giving okay. you a whole bunch of tools that you normally are used to in existing editors that instead of modifying pixels or modifying curves, they will modify that backend that encodes everything in a, in a node graph, that encodes your artwork. Um, those tools are building the nodes for you and modifying the data that goes into those nodes. And then it renders in real time as you work with the existing tools that you're already used to and you're familiar with. But instead of being stored as pixels that are destructive, so destructive means that you are writing over one color of pixel with another color of pixel. And as, as soon as you're done making that change, you can't really go and say, I wanted a different color to write over that color because you don't know what the original one was. You can't undo that operation. You, you can literally hit Control Z, but you can't come back half an hour later and decide, you know, I wanted blue instead of green, or I wanted a blur that was 10 pixel radius instead of five pixel radius, or I wanted to have five flower petals on my flower instead of three flower petals on my flower, or I don't know, 50 instead of 30. Those kind okay. of creative decisions, if you're storing them as data, that is something that allows you to come back and make meaningful creative decisions later, uh, make changes to those creative decisions later down the road. And it allows you to iterate much faster as an artist. You can try many more things because you can say, does this flower look better with 50 or 30 petals? Or does this look better if I have a lot of blur or less blur? Or what color is actually best in this scenario? Those are things you just can't do in other programs. But with a node-based uh, node based approach, where you're in storing things as data instead of pixels, that is a significantly improved workflow. And that's what we're trying to build, something that is brand new to the entire industry. I see. So like the way I think about it, uh, not, not editor, is that you record the operations that the user does. So for example, take, um, I don't know, the pencil and draw it from in these points, and then, I don't know, apply this effect and so on and so on. 
And so when you save the when you save the file, for example, I imagine when I save the file in GIMP, maybe they only they only save the current pixels. Exactly. And so you cannot control you cannot control Z. Uh, instead, you store the whole uh, operation that that uh, the user did. I see. Yeah, uh, they're actually to get a little more into the detail here. There actually are no such there there is no such thing as pixels. Um, as in layers are not composed of this grid of pixels where you, at the beginning of your document, just at the beginning of creating a document, you decide, I want my document to be 1920 by 1080 pixels, and you're committed to that decision. And you can draw things on it, and maybe you decide, I want to double that resolution later, but if you double it later, you're just going to have to upscale whatever you worked on before that point. In our case, we don't have pixels. Pixels are something that happens when it gets rendered, which is to say, Every time you ever make changes, every time you zoom in, we're going to re-render your document. And the render engine is going to pick how to render it at the current resolution you're viewing it at or the current resolution that you're exporting a file. But there are no pixels that are set in stone because you're not operating on pixels. You're operating on data. And the resolution that you're viewing or the resolution you're exporting is just where we end up choosing to make pixels show up in that very moment, but not as part of the way that the document is built. I see. Uh, yeah, so you said that like there are two main categories of uh, 2D graphic editors. Mm -hmm. So the raster ones, which are like GIMP, which are which like yeah, you you, uh, you decide your uh, the size of your Canva, you you paint pixel and that's it. You get like if you zoom in, you will see pixel, uh, and there are vector. Uh, Graphic editor such as Inkscape, when where, let's say you just define the shape of uh, your image and you can zoom uh, indefinitely. At, at least this exactly. is the way I think about it. And so you, in Graphite, you want to merge them. And the trick that like the how you are you do you plan to merge them is by using this uh, node uh, node graph as node editor. Yeah, exactly. So mm. with vector editors, typically, because you're describing things as curves, not as pixels, you can actually zoom in and you will continue to render at this higher resolution. But that's never been the case with any other raster editors because they're always working on documents that are composed of pixels. And if you work at a certain resolution and then zoom in more, you don't have those additional pixels anymore. And what we're doing is we're kind of bringing that same concept, that vector already benefits from being what it's called resolution agnostic, where it doesn't actually care what the resolution is. It'll just render at whatever the resolution is that you're viewing it at. It's like in a game, if you are a 3D game, if you are looking at a wall from a distance, you can walk right up to that wall and keep getting closer and closer, and you're going to see it rendered for you bigger because it's taking up more of your screen. The same idea here. You can either render vector graphics by zooming in more and continue to get that resolution. Or let's say you were drawing with a brush. And a drawing with a brush is typically a, a raster operation. So if you're doing an actual digital painting, that is typically going to be something that commits your brush stroke, your, your mouse movement, or your you know however you're actually drawing any stroke, to pixels. But we're not committing those to pixels. We're committing that as mouse positions into the node graph that stores the data of how your mouse moved. And then we're going to re-render whatever you drew at the resolution you're viewing it at. 
And let's say you zoom in a bunch, you're not even seeing the things that are off screen. So we're not going to bother rendering those things that are off screen at that moment. We're just going to render the pixels that you're seeing. And that's much more like a game where you are walking up close to a tree or something, and we're seeing the details of that tree. But if you instead go two miles away to you know, another town in the game, you're not going to see that tree except as a few pixels covering up a, few, you know, a little bit of, uh, of your screen. So we don't render that in the detail that you need. But you can always go back and see it closer. But that's not ever been the way that um, that raster editors work. Typically, if you wanted to have a tree that was visible from the town over, um, if you're making a scene, you would have to have like a million by a million pixel document, which is absolutely a massive file. It's going to be extremely difficult for your computer to keep up with that. You'd have to have an insane amount of memory. You'd have to have an insane amount of storage just to save that file. Whereas in our case, most of our documents are actually going to be very, very small. I typically work with Photoshop documents that can get up to like 20 gigabytes in size because I sometimes composite a large number of layers together that are also very large because they come off my camera. Hmm. But in our case, we're going to store any kind of data you import. So if you actually import things from a camera, of course, we're going to just store those raw files as they are imported. But we use them more as data, and then we interpret them at runtime or whenever we're actually rendering the document. And of course, we'll have caching and things that are used to as part of that interpretation process. But when you actually save your file, any changes you make are really just going to be you know a few kilobytes in size because we're just describing the operations that go on that you stacked up and you built this graph of operations rather than storing additional layers of millions of pixels, which actually takes a lot of data. So this allows us to be uh, to be non-destructive, meaning you have more creative control later down the pipeline. After you've made creative decisions, you can go back and change them. But at the same time, we're also going to use less storage. Of course, that's the, the traditional thing in computer science is memory versus time. So we will, of course, use less memory, but use more time to compute things if you open up a document brand new. So we might also be storing some of these operations that are particularly expensive. Uh, we might store them cached into the document optionally and allow users to you know, encode that into the document or not encode it into the document, but it'll take longer to open for the first time. With cache, like you mean that you create snapshots of uh, like uh, like after, I don't know, 1,000 operations, you create a snapshot. And then you when you load your uh, uh, your project, it will start uh, calculating the operations from this snapshot. That's so, definitely one way to do it. Dennis, do you want to cover this one? Yeah. So what we can do is that we well, we still have the reason, resolution agnosticism. So if you were to, like one trivial way to do a snapshot is that we just render the document at some resolution and just treat that as a big pixel bitmap. But then, of course, if you zoom in, you once again see pixels, and we have to recompute that. But the graph is more complicated. We don't just have REST operations which need to be composited. We also have some. If we have a, in, if we have some vector, as you know, we can mix both vector and raster workflows. So if we, for example, have a vector workflow, we can. It's this is a computer programming languages term. We can constant fold things that don't change. So if there's we have a big graph, and there's one branch that just does nothing. It's just it always stays constant. We can just pre-compute the branch and use the result, and we don't have to recalculate this entire branch of the graph every frame. It's we can cache it, and that's uh, 
where our intelligent caching system will come in. And we will need to do, we also have some of that already in place, intelligent caching, where we don't always recompute, because that's a huge issue. As you mentioned, this is pretty similar to how a game engine operates. We also get the same issues as a game engine. A game engine has to deal with performance issues. Like if you we don't want to that we don't want the editor to lag if you zoom in. It should feel smooth and instant. You don't want your game to lag. It's the same problem and we have to come up with the same solutions basically. Yeah, we're actually taking a lot of concepts from the game industry and the the graphics pipeline that's typically used by games and bringing these more to the world of traditional 2D graphics. Because if you think about it, Photoshop is something like 35 years old at this point that far predates any 3D games that were meaningfully graphically intensive at the time, um, you know, using anything that resembles the modern graphics pipeline. And those concepts sort of carried forward into the entire world of 2D graphics. But nowadays, GPUs, graphics drivers, entire, most of the, the, the graphics world in its development and its research has all focused more on rendering and on game development because that is by far the biggest industrial component of graphics. So as a result, being able to tailor our approach towards being more compatible with those, both from a rendering perspective, as well as uh, even a um, just a conceptual perspective where we're actually taking some of these just generally ideas, like the idea of resolution agnostic being equivalent to walking up to a tree in a world in a 3D game. Um, these concepts, they're completely normal for graphics engineers that are working on 3D games. But bringing this to the world of 2D is actually sort of merging this with the ideas that have predated the 3D worlds um, from 2D graphics editing that has existed for 35 years. I see. Yeah, I think that like you can do a lot of innovation by bringing ideas from another field into another one. And exactly. uh, yeah. I don't know if I, I'm right, but like your process of optimizing the uh, of caching the node graph, the node uh, like the operations, uh, it looked to me similar as the compiler optimizing assembly or like optimizing your code removing a unused variable. Is it? Is it similar? It's, it's, it's <laughs> the exact same thing. Okay. And we're using this the gets same into techniques. the core thesis, which is that our entire node graph is itself a programming language. And I'm very excited for Dennis yes. to explain all that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, this is a doozy. So in, in Graphene, like Graphite is the project, and Graphene is our node editing language. And Graphene itself is a purely functional programming language. And every graphene node is bijective, so it has a one-to-one -one mapping to a Rust function. So every node is implemented as a Rust function. So what we can do is that we, well, we have a bunch of nodes. The nodes are connected with other nodes. And we can then translate those nodes into their respective Rust functions and just make a call graph. So one node calls another node because it's connected into the node's input. We can translate that to one function calling another function. So this entire node system is just a functional programming language. But what we end up doing is, well, we have multiple versions of our 
basically compute runtime. There's an interpreted version where we at runtime do dynamic linking and dynamically link functions together, like small functions, which are nodes. We link them together to form one coherent graph execution. I'd also like to quickly interrupt and explain what these nodes might be to give a more physical yes, understanding. So a node could be um, one node, which is a Rust function, can be something that builds the data to render the pixels that show up on the screen for a brush stroke. So if you're drawing a squiggle with a brush, this will be a, a function that can return the color of each pixel that renders that brush stroke. Or another one could be something that takes input data of, a, of an image, and then it gives a blurred version of that image. Another one could be something that replaces all the, the colors with 50% opacity. So you take an image, and then you kind of overlay any color of your choice on top of it. Or another one could be something that uh, takes a vector shape. So this is something that's infinitely scalable because it's defined as mathematical curves. And it basically is a node that stores or produces something like a circle or something like a star or some arbitrary shape. All of these are the different types of data that combine together in different ways. And then we have things that might render from a shape into pixels. So when you're viewing a curve, you need to be able to go from the mathematical description of a curve and then give it color information so it knows what color it should be or how its gradient should look and how that gradient is aligned. And that will then produce pixels that show up on the output on the output view. Um, so these are all just some examples of how these Rust functions combine together, because you might want to draw something with a brush on top of an image and then composite those on top of each other by blending the top pixels to the bottom pixels, and then change the color and then blur it. All of these different things combine together into what ultimately produces your entire artwork. Yeah, also one thing like Keevan just mentioned a bunch of nodes that take something as input and transform it, but actually the input is a node as well. If you insert an image into the node graph, that's also a node. It's a function that doesn't take any input and returns an yeah. image as output. So all of those are functions that we can translate the nodes to functions, and we can then use programming compiler techniques to do things like constant folding. So constant folding is you look at a branch of your program, which doesn't change. It doesn't depend on any input. So you can just compute it at compile time and use the comp computed result. And that's one of the techniques that we can use. And as I mentioned, we have Rust functions. Another thing that we can do is that we actually just copy paste the source code for these together, or well, the function calls. And then we can let the Rust compiler compile the entire thing into a single binary. So we can do let the compiler do all the optimization and inlining to actually produce an optimized binary. And we can also do that at a granular, granular level. So for example, if we have some part of the node graph which doesn't really change that much, we can take that branch, like that section of the node graph, and compile it to a binary, then we can seamlessly swap out the nodes for that pre-compiled binary, which is now optimized if we even further improve runtime performance. And yes, it's very much programming language, and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, essentially, it's one giant Rust program that renders your final artwork. And 
graphite as a tool is a way of providing a user experience to that programming language to interactively modify your artwork and build artwork that is building a Rust program to render your final artwork. And it will interactively do that as you make changes. It will change that program, render it in real time for you to see. But then finally, that Rust program at the end of the day, you know, when you're done with creating your artwork, that is a Rust program that produces your artwork. And it can produce it at any resolution you want. You can say, I want this to render at the size of a billboard, because you're going to go print a giant billboard that is going to be you know, like 40 meters across or something on, a, on the side of a highway. Or you might want something that's really small, anything like that. Any of these images that you're going to use, you can render it at any resolution you want, because it's ultimately a program that builds artwork. And Graphite is a program that allows you to interact with it and build that program that builds the artwork. Okay, yeah, the fact that while you're editing uh, an image, you're producing basically a Rust program or even a Rust binary, it's mind-blowing. And like for... It's kind of like a, it's an IDE for Rust. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's, uh, it's incredible, yes. And like, it, it makes me think that like for if, if people are looking to contribute to this project, uh, maybe, I, I don't know, the, but the thing that I will think is, well, I'm not into graphics, but in reality, you can contribute, like Graphite, I think it's a very, very big project. And so you can contribute to small areas that are not related to graphics. They're related to, I don't know, programming languages, compilers, yes. and stuff like that. Yes. Especially yeah. programming languages and compilers. That is something where most of our existing contributors come from mostly a graphics background. But we do actually really, really need people more from a programming languages and, comp and, and compilers background. Um, and also even more of a distributed systems background as well, because the, the other thing we didn't mention is that this language is also built to be as distributed as possible. So we can distribute resources across CPU, GPU, and even a cluster of machines on the cloud. Um, so also distributed systems as it pertains to, um, like it, it's sort of like the intersection between programming languages and compilers and distributed systems. Um, all of those are things that we actually really sort of have a lacking of expertise in. We have Dennis, but we don't really have other people that have that kind of background. So that's the kind of thing where it would be super valuable for us to have people who um, come from that background rather than a graphics background to join that team. Great. So yeah, if you're looking for a project to contribute, definitely check out Graphite. And yeah, I would like to ask you, why did you pick Rust as a language to write Graphite in the first place? Yeah, um, it seemed kind of obvious, but it definitely wasn't a trivial decision. I mean, it seemed obvious once I had done the research and <laughs> concluded it. Um, there was very obviously no other choice that would have made sense after I did the research. Um, but some of the real reasons were, or some, some of the driving reasons basically was I wanted something that could work in the web. Um, and that was because I had spent my past what is it, 13 years in education or however many years that I was doing this where I would remote desktop into my machine on the school's libraries. So I would download remote desktop software and then uh, log back into my machine at home so I could use Blender, so I could use Photoshop, so I could do any sorts of advanced things because the software on those school computers and also just the processing power on those computers was not sufficient. But having 
a powerful program that's purely web-based. It doesn't have to be web-based, but it can be web-based for people who want it to be, who are just logging in from a school computer or just want to open up something quickly and do some small changes to an image on occasion. Those are cases where having that capability to be web-based is really important. So uh, I really didn't want to compromise on having web, Windows, Mac, Linux, and also probably iPad in the future being our targets of choice. Um, and the web ecosystem basically means, um, uh, but sorry, but the other the other thing is I wanted to make sure that the desktop versions could be actually native desktop and they're not just going to be running inside of an Electron application or something. Um, so having something where I could write native code with native performance and not have to write everything in JavaScript, which is just slow, um, having especially in the context of something that's very graphically intensive. Um, that was something where there's not too many choices. You can do C and C++, which has, I guess, within scriptum, you can do WebAssembly compilation, but the most ergonomic uh, the most ergonomic choice is Rust. And then you also have a bunch of other libraries that Rust provides that there really isn't too much of an equivalent of in C++, until recently, at least. Uh, I guess now there is Dawn, which is the C++ equivalent from the Chromium team for uh, the WebGPU implementation. But basically, WebGPU is the replacement for WebGL. And that is a specification for using modern access to graphics cards that are um, that works on any platform. So if you're writing, typically if you're writing a desktop application, you're going to be using DirectX or uh, or Metal for Mac or Vulkan or OpenGL for Linux and other platforms, and I guess also Windows, but mostly you'd be using DirectX on Windows. Um, but the WebGPU standard is one that allows you to write JavaScript and make it run in the web browser, regardless of whether you're on Windows, Mac, Linux, or even mobile devices. But having the same, uh, that same, um, you know, that same standardization and interoperability, sorry, portability was the word I was looking for. Having that same portability for native programs basically means that you have to use what's called in the Rust land, uh, WGPU, that is a crate that allows you to write what is basically the Rust equivalent of those JavaScript calls for the WebGPU standard, because the WebGPU standard is the one that is a, a new browser API. But the Rust equivalent of those calls allows you to use WGPU, not WebGPU, but WGPU, that's the Rust crate. And that Rust crate allows you to then compile native applications for Windows, Mac, Linux, or web. Um, using a backend of either Vulkan or DirectX or Metal. Those are the three different APIs for uh, for the three main operating systems. Or the web, which is going to then compile to the WebGPU API, which is what Rust is ultimately wrapping for you. So that was a lot of words, a lot of very similar yeah. terminology here. But so, so the, WG... the important part is being able to either use C++ or Rust. So C++ would use something called Dawn, which is by the Chromium team, but that only came out very recently. And then WGPU came out, well, I guess slightly earlier, maybe at the same time, but it's the Rust, it, it's basically the preferred way within the Rust ecosystem to make portable graphics applications that run natively or on the web. So having that library really allowed us to pick basically either C or Rust as our main choice. And it's honestly just, see, Rust is a much nicer language. And then there are some additional reasons as well, but um, I can get into those a little bit later if you'd like. Yeah, sure. So yeah, you be, you choose Rust because of performance and uh, like portability and uh, libraries support. 
so uh, so uh, WGPU lets you build your like you write your program using WGPU and with WGPU you can target like Windows, Mac, Linux, and also a web browser. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And it will natively target those graphics APIs, allowing you to run both compute shaders as well as regular, uh, regular shaders, you know, regular graphics pipeline shaders, um, to do rendering as well as computation that's distributed across thousands of cores that the GPU provides you, and that's very much needed for a graphics applications such as this. I see. But like, what's the interface that WGPU provides as a programmer? So I, I think that it doesn't provide like I don't know bu buttons or text inputs. Is is lower level, right? Right. Well, it's an API directly to call yeah. and run programs, distributed programs on the GPU, and you build those programs. And here's the, actually the cool part: is one other part of the the Rust ecosystem that's something that you can't do with C plus plus, is that. Thanks to Embark's project, Embark is a, a game studio in um, Stockholm, and they're they're building a project called um, called uh, Rust GPU, and it is a compiler backend for the Rust compiler itself to write your shader programs in Rust so that they run on the GPU itself, and that allows oh. us to reuse our code that runs on the CPU on the GPU in most cases. Okay, so that makes gra graphite. Faster because it runs on the GPU instead of the CPU. Yes, and allows yes. us to do that more easily. We don't have to spend as much time, therefore, porting every like porting the the CPU code to the GPU for every single node that we write. It just happens in most cases automatically. There are some cases where we're doing something that's impossible on the GPU, but those are and we might have to like have an alternate version for those ones. But most of the time. Um, and you can even just use, like, I believe, compiler flags to say compile this section of code for the the Rust. I'm sorry, the the CPU and this version for the GPU. Yeah, so I I will have to interject there. <laughs> yes, I think you can do a better um, job describing it than me. Yeah. So um, what Rust GPU actually does is it's a code gen backend for the Rust compiler, as Kevin said, and it targets SPIV. SPIV is a Binary shader application format um, spearheaded by the Vulkan, by the Kronos group and the implementers of Vulkan for Vulkan. It's basically the Vulkan shader format. And a Vulkan, similar to Metal and DirectX, are graphic APIs. And WGPU is basically a meta graphics API, which is a layer that translates into the different specific platform specific APIs. It just translates the calls. So we can use one interface to access all of them. And as Keaton mentioned, we can use GPU acceleration inside of our node graph. And um, we do that through, well, for now, currently we do that manually. Like you can place nodes to, it's basically a, a map a execute on GPU node, and you then can provide another node as a lambda to this node. And in Rust, you can like in Rust, you have a, the dot map function, which executes something for every value, and we have a map GPU function which executes a lambda on the GPU, basically. And that's how we can encode the GPU execution inside of the node graph. And that actually touches on another neat thing that I forgot to mention earlier, and 
as uh, good as time as any to do that. Um, graphene really does provide somewhat of a paradigm shift, how we can think about what our node graph does. Uh, for example, if you wanted to implement something like batch processing for images, like you have, you notice that your, your image sensor has a dead pixel. So there's a black spot on every image. What you could do is that you manually go through to, through every image and use a like repair tool to remove that black pixel. But what you would do in graphite, well, in, in Photoshop, there's a specific like batch processing function. The Photoshop developers build a thing for doing batch processing, which is the only thing you can specify a folder and then it applies it to all images in that folder. But how you would do that in graphene or in graphite is that you just, you do it for one image and then you just use your node graph as a function. And then you use a node which loads all image names in a directory. And then you use the dot map function, like the dot map node on this vector of image names, and then apply the image operation to all images and then save all of them, like doing some sort of for each collect thing. And that's just a way how in graphite something like batch processing, it's it's a property of the node system that just naturally occurs. It's an emergent behavior. That's one of the key design principles behind the graphene language. I wanted to do as much as possible just from within the language itself. It's not the runtime. Like the that's similar to like the design paradigm shift between well design differences between something like Rust and C. And in some sense, graphene is more similar to a C-like programming language because most of the functionality is not provided by the runtime. It's actually built from within the language. Like you, you combine constructs in graphene to build more complex things, for example, like batch processing, that's all just an emergent property system. We didn't do anything um, to implement GPU code like in the runtime. It's you can just write a node and the users can write a node. That's the empowering thing. Graphene is about empowering users to do what they want. And my kind of as the sort of chief designer of the graphene language, my job is to get out of the user's way if they want to implement something. Um, they should be able to do that. And I'm trying my best to allow them to give them any freedom, flexibility they want so they can do whatever they want without even needing to change the graphite source code. Just and more tangibly, the way within that works is that, yeah, within the editor, people can either combine together a large number of nodes into a single node, and that is a new function that does something that they built out of the emergent properties of other nodes that they used, or they can even open a Rust text editor, write a Rust program, and then compile that while it's still in the editor. And that will become another node. Um, so you have two choices. One is to build it from scratch with Rust source code, or the other is to generate it out of a bunch of nodes and combine them into a single node. OK, so if you want to do like batch, this batch processing, you, yes. can, you can define the operations that you want to do either by 
doing them with the UI or by writing a Rust program? Yes, I mean, of course, you could also just write a Rust program that opens a directory and then does all the operations. But the main thing I was, um, the point I was making with that argument is that we don't, as graphite developers, we don't have to create a new menu, batch processing. We don't have to create a UI for batch processing because batch processing is already basically implemented. It's, a, it's something that you can do yourself from within the language. And if there's ever a different, like we as graphite developers don't have to implement batch processing, which decreases our burden to on the things we have to do to reach feature parity. That's also a thing. Like if users are if users need a feature, they can also just build the feature themselves. We don't have to do everything, which makes it a lot easier for us to reach a basically a viable product an MVP stage. Yeah, so like, are you talking about plugins and stuff like that? So maybe people can can define. I, I'm thinking like people can define maybe new tools uh, by combining existing uh, tools and creating a new a new combination of uh, operations. Sort of like that, yeah. We still have to figure out exactly how tools, which is like the, the paintbrush tool or the pen yeah. tool, those kinds of tools that interact with the, with the document. We still have to figure out how we're going to do plugins for those. Um, we do definitely want to support that in the future. But more generally, the ability to say, I want a very custom kind of blur that does some interesting graphical effect that looks sort of like blur, but different in a certain way. A user doesn't have to file a feature request and ask us to build it because they can just build it themselves, either by combining together other nodes or by writing the Rust code themselves to make that node that does that blur. Or they want to have the ability to batch process an entire folder of nodes, uh, sorry, an entire folder of images. Or they want to ingest data from an API and convert that into a batch of images. So they, they grab data from a database, and for every row in that database, they export an image. We don't have to go and make a menu item that says, in, like load data from a database, blah, blah, blah. They can just go grab a node from our entire catalog of nodes and build that functionality to meet whatever their interesting and unique use case is. And that allows us to avoid feature creep. So we don't have to add millions of weird things to menus that most people are never going to use. And therefore, it's going to be distracting that they have to go look through this giant list of menu items that are almost never going to be used. That is something that's quite bothersome to me when I'm using existing uh, existing graphics editors that I use day to day, I only use maybe 10% of those menu items ever because most of them are very, very niche and specific. And you're going to go your entire career with it ever using the vast majority of them. And avoiding feature creep allows us to provide that functionality to only the people who need it by just grabbing a node from the node catalog. Yeah. Another good example of when that can be used is if, for example, you want to make YouTube thumbnails and let's say you do a you do a series, if you were to upload this to YouTube, for example, you would add like the text, trip podcast, episode number, and the thumbnail, like our faces or something. And how you could do that is you just, is for this episode, you could just specify a CSV file in which you write like episode number, episode title, image to use. And then you can define a graphene graph or a graphite document, which loads the CSV file and then 
generates the thumbnail image for you. So that's another way how you can very easy, easily automate everything you do. That's also an influence of having programmers also having their hands in the design and also. Are we yeah, looking to that? Yeah. <laughs> Another example that's similar to that one would be if you're building a trading card game and you need the artwork as well as the, the name of the card, what level the card is, what the elements are, like different tags, uh, the lore description at the bottom, um, which class can use this card, all that different information that needs to be displayed on this card. But then you have a thousand cards. So you're definitely gonna have to put in the effort to build the artwork, you know, to 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 draw the artwork for that card, but all the rest of it is just text or it's metadata in the sense that it's like this elemental has this effect and it's this level. Those are all just like data basically. If you can write in a spreadsheet all the columns for describing that card, and then one of those rows, one of those cells in the spreadsheet is a link to the image that you're using. So it could be either a URL on the web, you know, somewhere on the web, or it could be a local file, or it could be from your FTP server, or it could be grabbing it from some private source, like an S3 bucket or something. Um, we'll have different ways of grabbing resources. And you basically just add a new row. Whenever you want to design a new card, you just add a new row to your, uh, your spreadsheet. And then you just tell graphene, or, you know, you, you build a graphite document that is sort of the template for one card. And then you take that entire card example and feed it the title, like the text is from one cell or one column of the spreadsheet. The image is from the resource that's grabbed from the URL at another one, you know, another column of your spreadsheet. And you basically make it so it takes the data from the spreadsheet and builds the card for you out of that template. And you can make a completely custom card without really any limitations whatsoever. And then you can blur the image if you wanted. Let's say you want like a, a vignette blur around the, the corners of your image. Then you can set it up to do that vignette blur. And you want to maybe change, um, uh, yeah, basically you have full control just like you're programming over anything you would need to do. You can transform the text. Let's say you wanted to search for any word that uses the name of a, of a character class in your trading card game, you can do like a regex search on that text and tell it to turn any of the text that has the name of that class, let's say with double double square brackets or something, into something that becomes bold. Or it could even read it in like markdown format and then format that markdown into bold text or italic text or things like that. Um, so you're basically doing like data processing on text form, you know, like on text before it then turns out as uh, the formatting that goes into a text box that appears in your artwork. So you can basically have full control over the pipeline and make the stuff that supports thousands of cards. So you don't have to have a graphic designer going through and doing manual changes. And let's say you slightly modify your format. You don't have to go through and make that same change to your format a thousand times across all your cards. You just re-export the thousand cards within a minute or so, however long it takes to render out all the cards. Sounds great, yes. Wow, it's very interesting, nice. And yeah, I wanted to ask you, so, uh, so Graphite runs both on like desktop and browser. And 
yeah, you said that WGPU made this easier. Like, I wanted to understand if, uh, if even if you use WGPU, if running on the browser still uh, comes with some challenges with respect to <laughs> the desktop version. And like, yeah, what are these challenges and how did you <laughs> solve them? Many challenges galore. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I can, like from a, well, there are many challenges. For example, one of the things that is still, that's still hard to do is, for example, multi-threading as Kevin mentioned when we started. Um, and also there is just a, like there is a performance overhead of running in the browser. If we were to do the same thing natively, it would be easier. And there's also um, browser, different browsers supporting different features. So for example, there were times where we had to disable graphite basically for macOS and Safari users because Safari just didn't support things that we needed because those are just web API standards, but Safari chooses to not implement them. And that's that's quite annoying. And yeah. yeah. Supporting standards across all browsers when we're doing very complex things, not the things that a usual website's going to do, but the things that a, a complex, sophisticated web app needs to do that uh, approaches the functionality of a desktop app. That's where you really run into the issue with being able to support things across all the browsers, because not all the bother supporting some of these more complex APIs. I see. So you, you would suggest to download Graphite locally if you can, instead of running from the browser? In the future. Yeah, uh, we don't so... actually have a desktop version maintained at the moment. Uh, oh, we okay. experimented with it, but we don't have any download available at the moment because uh, we just haven't been able to put the maintenance effort into that yet. Yeah, yeah but that's probably going to change at some point because, um, well, we're currently using Tori, which is another Rust project, which is similar to um, Electron, but instead of using Electron, it uses the system native web view. And uh, they've recently enabled um, the possibility to get a raw image handle. So the, one of the main issues is communication between the Rust code and the front-end code, which is still written in JavaScript, because it's basically just JSON string communication. And what we will soon be able to do is that for the native view, for the native desktop version, we can do the rendering purely in Rust, and then basically inject the rendered viewport into the application and render the rest of the front end using JavaScript. So it's a kind of Frankenstein mix between having the UI run in JavaScript and the actual render viewport running in Rust. And at that point, the desktop version will become viable again. And you yeah, to drive to drive the point home, basically at the moment we compile our Rust code into code uh, into a WebAssembly binary that runs in the browser. And then there's some JavaScript that runs the way that you click on the buttons, everything pertaining to the actual HTML aspect of our UI. But then everything else, the, the actual core logic, all the rendering, all the business logic, all of the management of state, all of that happens in Rust within the WebAssembly binary locally on your own browser. But 
all of that code, which is by far the most performance intensive part, the actual JavaScript itself is extremely fast. And people have come to constantly to us that, wow, this really feels like a desktop app, not a web app. It's so fast. There's just no latency when I click on buttons. I didn't know the web could be this fast. Um, but all of that code is the code that's just really, really lightweight JavaScript that enables you to click on buttons and things. Um, but all the other business logic of the editor runs in WebAssembly on the browser. But we can then, using the Tari architecture, using Tari as our desktop wrapper almost, um, all of the Rust code that we write, instead of compiling that to WebAssembly, which is a little slower because it has to be interpreted by the uh, by the virtual machine that interprets WebAssembly. Uh, instead, we run that natively on the Windows, Mac, or Linux platform as native code. Um, and that's what Tari allows us to do, is compile that code natively and then still use the Tari API to communicate to the JavaScript. And the JavaScript will make changes to the web page and allow you to update button, you know, update the UI, click on buttons, and just run the slight amount of JavaScript that's needed for that. I think about 10% of our code is JavaScript, um, 10 or 20% or something. And have you considered uh, like using Rust uh, with WebAssembly also for the front end, so replacing it, uh, replacing the this JavaScript with the Rust in WebAssembly? I don't know if it's possible. Eventually, we'd like to get rid of all of our entire um, all of our entire JavaScript backend completely, but we are waiting on some long future project, like long term future projects, such as Xylem, which is the linebender slash a slash Rafe Levine project that's working on kind of the hopefully the final form UI of, of, of the Rust ecosystem once that comes online in the future. Okay, so you're 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 waiting for other UI libraries to, to come up yeah. to go. It's probably going to be several years at a minimum before um, that is mature enough to be usable. And then we still have to wait to schedule that in our own roadmap to replace all of our front end that's written in JavaScript at the moment, which is very lightweight and generally works quite well, but we would love to make that even more native in the future by rewriting that into the Rust-based approach. And yeah. why are you waiting for, sorry, go Dennis. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to repeat the GIMP issue where GIMP noticed that there wasn't a great UI framework available, so they made GTK mm. and now there's GTK and they spent a whole bunch of resources on actually creating GTK to make an image editor. And I didn't realize just, the GIMP was, were, the, creating, were yeah. the creators of that. And the funniest thing is that now GTK is like, well, GTK was, GTK is now at version four and for quite a while, like it, it's being replaced by now, but for the most time, GIMP was still on GTK 2 <laughs> because they just never updated it so much work. But yeah, we don't want to do that because that's a bunch of work and uh, we have enough on our hands with just implementing yeah. Graphite. So we'll, Our roadmap is insane. Yeah, it's we're, just using the, mind -boggling we're using how the how much of these resistance for now. Yeah, Sorry, most of the saying? things that lie ahead of us are really, really interesting engineering problems like version management. We're basically going to be building our own Git implementation to manage the, the file versioning. Um, we have to deal with uh, CRDTs to be able to make changes that sync automatically across different node graphs that have been changed by different users that haven't been connected over the internet. We want to support the real-time communication able to make it so you can do collaborative editing, just sort of like Google Docs, where you both work on the same document at the same time. But the, even if one of you goes offline, we can then sync those back up 
afterwards without any kind of conflicts. Um, that's just a tiny, tiny little glimpse at some of these things that lie in the future with our roadmap that are exciting engineering problems, but they are also quite daunting. I wanted to ask you, why are you waiting for this particular Rust library? And what, why is, the, is it different with respect to the other available? Because our, our, our UI is already pretty good and we're quite happy with it. But in the, we would like to eventually, as its final form, adopt what is perfection, essentially. And we think that Xylem is most likely going to be the perfect Rust UI library, but it's just going to take several years before. Yeah, but that, I mean, if if something um, better comes up, we, we're we not that set on Xylem. It's just what currently looks promising, yes. um, but it's also very much a research project. It They might just abandon it. Mm, and exactly. um, there are also other Rust UI libraries for example, the um, Cosmic Desktop team uses Iced as the UI system. So that's probably going to get like a lot more mature over the next little while. So that might be worth revisiting at some point. But yeah, it's just there's still the whole ecosystem is still in flux. And we right now we're pretty it, it does work pretty well with the browser and it looks consistent across different operating system that's yeah yeah absolutely like if it was if what you have is working well uh it's yeah. you you should yeah. replace it soon uh, i think you have most important things to do i just wanted to yeah. understand why you said why you think that uh, that this particular library is perfect or it is going to be perfect why do you think that it's better than the other one to your liking of course yeah, I mean, ultimately, this point is sort of speculation on the success of different research endeavors that will go into building what Xylem hopes to be. But um, the main things would be the focus on utmost performance as well as ergonomics for developer experience of using the library. Um, another is the accessibility integration to be able to integrate. I think it's called Access Kit to make it highly accessible. Um, and Generally, oh, also um, using the rendering backend of something called Velo, which is the other project by the Linebender slash Rafe Levine um, person slash organization that is working on both the render engine as well as the UI framework. And we are using Velo. We, we shortly will be using Velo for our vector graphics rendering. So being able to render the UI with the same code base that renders our vector graphics. Um, is a good way of ensuring both consistency as well as reducing the binary size and keeping things lightweight and keeping things ergonomic. I see. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you, like, I'm very curious about uh, the collaborative editing part. And yeah, I wanted to ask you if you have, so it's not implemented yet, right? Not at the uh, moment. We had yeah, some okay. small prototype with it a long time ago, okay. but um, yeah. it was so just a proof of concept. It's um, basically how the infrastructure and the system design works is that we have our JavaScript frontend and we have the Rust backend and they communicate through message passing. Mm -hmm. So at some point I just hooked up a small server, which just it, the JavaScript events were sent to the Rust backend and the Rust backend then echoed those JavaScript messages to a WebSocket connection and then to a server, the server broadcasted it to all connected clients. That way, we just basically just replicated user inputs across 
both browsers and that allows it allowed it allowed us to edit doc, the documents in sync that was quite a useful experience to have like it was i implemented that in like a day or half a day um but for that to be more robust uh, we need the crdt based git like approach and that will still require a bit more research and that's actually like that's a topic in academia that's not even fully solved yet so we will probably have to publish a paper on that once we come up with a good solution and um i'm pretty confident that the solution i've come up with is already pretty good so we'll we'll have to see yeah, nice. this is also a, a good opportunity for anyone who's interested in that research arm, especially of CR CRDT technology, um, to get involved and potentially co-author a paper or something. Really interesting. And so Graphite, right now, it's all client-based, right? It, it, runs, it runs on the browser, so you, you don't have an infrastructure where you're hosting something, right? At the moment, the extent of our infrastructure is a couple um, couple proxies for different APIs that allow us to deliver you fonts from the Google Fonts API. Um, and I think that is our only endpoint at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, for now, that's also pretty good because we will, we will never run into a problem, like because everything is executed locally, we will never run into a problem where we have a huge influx of users and we then either can't support that many users or our costs just skyrocket because i mean it's an open source project we don't charge anything it's all free so it's um yeah that would that could potentially kill the project so it's pretty good that we don't have that issue right now yeah we want things running locally and that can also get into a little preview of our longer term way of supporting the project which is that because the computation in some cases can be very heavy. And because we are building this to be very distributed, we will allow people in the future, if they want to speed up some really complex documents they're working on, they could rent cloud machines that help do some of the computation by streaming a description of the problem to the machine, and then it will send back the computed result over the internet. So people who want to subscribe to that, if they're doing complex um, you know, heavy document work, then we can do some of that rendering. And a, a good example of that is a lot of AI workloads. So if you want to do image generation with, with stable diffusion, and this is going to be our first use case we're really going to try and build out infrastructure for, is if you want to generate an image that can take several seconds. So you send out just as something as simple as, an, as a description of the text that you want generated, and maybe a seed and any other kind of metadata that goes along with it. And that is just a, a kilobyte or something or, or less of data. And then we send back from the cloud machine, uh, from the API endpoint, um, the rendered image much, much faster than it would have taken for your comparatively under spec machine that's also busy working on other parts of your render. Um, so basically, it's going to be like, it's going to be basically rendering as a service for people who want to support the project by um, ultimately speeding up their own workflow. But that's, of course, always going to be optional and we're not going to feature gate anything. Yeah, and that's also where like that might make sense for production studios with big like graphics pipelines. If you think, for example, like Disney, if they were to 
use graphite than they would have have of course but bigger like they have requirements which normal users don't have so in that case it might make sense to provide them with extra compute power that's another yeah. potential revenue exactly. source we want to of course make everything run as fast as possible but sometimes you just need to throw more horsepower at, more, more horsepower with more machines at it you might need 100 gpus instead of one gpu okay so yeah one 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 idea for the business model is to like that people from their laptops can experience a faster graphite because it runs on your server, right? Yeah, and in the future, another once one, we build that infrastructure. Yeah. Of course, we are not infrastructure people. That is one uh, significant hole in our experience yeah. as a team is that we do lack any of that infrastructure. So if anyone is very good in infrastructure and wants to help out with the project, <laughs> that would be fantastic to have someone with some kind of um, uh, machine, well, uh, yeah, both a machine learning background as well as um, a infrastructure kind of background. Both of those would be tremendously valuable because we do have to build out an account system and the way of spinning up and spinning down different machines that can do both Rust compilation because we need to compile people's Rust programs as well as like machine learning distributions where we can generate images for people or do uh, like large language models that could be customized. If you, know, for example, you want to ingest a spreadsheet of data and then get a large language model to convert that data into paragraphs that then gets put into your, into whatever sort of template-based thing you're doing. If you want to make a hundred different templates or you want to have like a business card for your hundred employees and you want to take their job description and have the large language model convert their job description into a one or two sentence bio or something like that. Um, those are all examples where we want to have the ability to have nodes that are kind of wrappers for machine learning models that you could even customize or train on your own and then execute those where it might just be like, you might not have a graphics card with enough VRAM locally. So you actually have to just do that on the cloud because you just might not have the machine that's needed. Okay, so basically I can provide both, like you can, uh, yeah, I can provide both the pipeline of the operations that I want somehow, and you can also generate the image because like if I go to, I don't know, that, Dali and this kind of image generation, they only generate the final image. But instead, if I use the AI from Graphite, first of all, you, you provide me with the Graphite project so that I can more easily add the image after, I guess, right? So the experience should be seamless to the user. The user shouldn't notice a difference if the mm. Uh, calculations actually executed on a different machine or if it's executed locally. That shouldn't make a difference from the user's perspective. It should just be faster. That's Yeah, just speed would be the only difference, hopefully. I see. And or so in some cases, the inability to run locally because you might actually not have enough VRAM that's necessary for a certain machine learning model. So we might just have to throw an error because it's just impossible. And you mentioned that you want to use stable diffusion. Uh, I wanted to ask why you you pick this technology instead of the other ones, such as like Dali, uh, what's the other one, Midjourney, and so on. Yeah, uh, Midjourney doesn't have an API. Uh, I think Dali does, but it's proprietary, so you can't run that locally. And we really want to be able to allow people to run things locally. So Stable Diffusion is the open source one, and that allows you to run it locally, um, and that allows us to control the infrastructure because we can't really deploy it ourselves if it's not open source and we don't have access to the to the project, you know, to the code. So 
um, stable diffusion is the one that allows people to run it locally as well as us running it. But again, we don't really have infrastructure experience, so we have not figured out how to cost effectively um, scale up and down the necessary machines that are able to run different instances. Um, keeping in mind that because they require so much VRAM, it can actually take several minutes to load a model into memory. And that is quite slow if you need to have one user log in all of a sudden, or maybe there's five user users all of a sudden, and they all decide to come and use the project, then you've got to have a few minutes dedicated to spinning up another cloud machine. And then they cost something like 30 or 40 cents per minute to run, or uh, sorry, per hour to run. Um, and then you need to scale them back down as soon as you're done using them, but you don't know precisely when the user is done using them. So it's all a bunch of infrastructure challenges. And we might start out early on just using an API from another provider and maybe allowing people to just uh, either use it for free at a small scale or um, pay enough to support both their own usage plus the usage of the free users. Um, we, at the moment, are not really trying to make money from it as much as just being able to financially support providing it to users for free, um, where if people want to use it enough that they're really costing us money, then they're going to have to pay a little money to chip into the pot. <laughs> um, but ultimately, something that can start paying both me, because I am working full time on this project, um, and turning down the opportunity to get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year working in Silicon Valley, uh, which is where I live, or um, also being able to in the future, once Dennis is done with his career, or sorry, with his, his um, college career, to then um, start with Graphite full time as well. That is our goal over the next year or two is to start building a business model that allows us to continue with this full-time and make it sustainable because that's the other big thing about open source projects is that they frequently just sputter out when the maintainer gets bored or isn't interested in the very long-term commitment and we really need to make sure that this is a long-term thing that makes sense yes and yeah for now like if you like you can you can donate to the project to support its development uh, and so on because yeah yes. it's all free and open source yeah right. on our website which is graphite.rs uh, rs for rust graphite.rs is uh, we do have a, a, a donation page there great and yeah speaking about like the project itself uh so Brickshit, which uh, yeah as i said in the uh, the beginning of the episode is the person that suggested me to, to speak with you uh, so he told me that Graphite is one of the uh, best projects as a contributor. And so I wanted to ask you how, uh, like, what's your strategy to m make welcome new contributors and uh, yeah, help them contribute to Graphite? Uh, yeah. Dennis, do you want to cover this? And actually, I'm going to be right back in about a minute. Sure. So, um, well, we have a couple of things that we do for onboarding people. Usually when they join our Discord, they write a short message describing sort of their background and where they come from. And um, we, like, Kevin and I often do design sessions where we just design systems in Graphite, talk about challenges, and um, sometimes we just record them because we go... Basically, I explain Keevan sort of the backend infrastructure, the node graph inner workings, and sometimes we just record those as videos. And those have proven as really valuable learning resources for new contributors. So 
we're not that great with in-code documentation because we are more focused on churning out new features and implementing features and not as much writing documentation, which will become stale in like a month, two month time. So yeah, that's the videos are great learning resource. And then we also just do pretty good one-to-one -one counseling. Like if they have issues, we go through and help them. And Kevin especially puts, just puts in the effort to really help them feel comfortable and uh, get working efficiently, efficiently. Yeah, I also think one very successful reason that people think that our project is more inviting to new contributors compared to the average is that most projects tend to just be loosely run through a, a GitHub page and anyone who's actually getting involved is just going to have to open an issue and do sort of this asynchronous, almost email-like communication with the project maintainer. Every few days, they might hear something back. Uh, and they don't really get to have extended conversations. It's more about writing a multi-paragraph question and then getting a multi-paragraph answer once or twice a day or once every day or two. And just the fact that we use Discord to communicate and we really pressure people to come on and use Discord as opposed to GitHub issues, it allows us to have really fluid conversations and um, basically talk through problems, uh, find where there are areas of confusion and try and enlighten people into the areas where they need to learn more. Um, having that, I think, is a very, very valuable tool towards making everyone feel more comfortable and being able to just make it much more of a fluid process. Um, it's just otherwise very cold and impersonal to only run a project through um, through issues and pull request comments. It just really doesn't work quite as well. So I would much rather message someone on Discord and have a conversation, even if I'm about to merge their pull request, instead of commenting on that pull request, I'd rather just send them a message because I'm gonna hear back from them sooner and we can send short little messages and have the conversation flow better. I see. Yeah, one downside I can think about is that Discord is not that searchable. So like if you yeah. if you put everything in GitHub, maybe it's it's easier from yeah, like external people to look what was the discussion and more context. And maybe yeah, that is a trade-off. Yeah. Like you, you you lose that context because like you don't know that that conversation was led to that PR. But yeah, I can understand that as a first-time contributor or maybe like a newcomer to the project, having a, you like available in the chat, it's way, way easier. Yes, because as you said, GitHub is more asynchronous as a, as a communication. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say 99% of the time we are moving forward and we are not looking backward. So having a communication mm -hmm. linked to a pull request and understanding the context behind why we built a certain feature rarely is needed because most often we're building a feature and never remembering that we even built that feature ever again because it's done. And there are occasional times we might have to go back and look at a look at a commit and say, why did we do this specific thing? Or who, who wrote this line of code? Why was that? But get blame is very useful for that. And if we really have to, we can see when was that pull request merged? We could then go back and search for the dates that that communication might've happened in Discord if we really had to. But pretty rare. I don't think we've ever really needed to do that, really. Yeah, that's a very pragmatic approach. So. Yeah. The more important part is taking common questions and common points of confusion and taking the effort of documenting those either through the contributor docs. We now have 
um, we, for about a year or so, we've had on our website just sort of a getting started guide, which explains something as basic as how to install the project on your environment. And also that's one more reason that Rust is amazing compared to C++ is that it's so easy to set up a project. And compared to C++, it is so difficult to set up a project and get your environment to build. Um, but Rust makes that very easy. So we do have um, just a, a contributor guide that explains how to install the project and then also goes through some of the real basics, um, explaining generally what the code is and why it's structured the way it is um, and how you interact with certain concepts like our message system, which is sort of the core of our architecture, um, all those sorts of things. We'd have those and we just link to that to any new contributors saying, start out by reading this. It takes maybe five or 10 minutes. And once they're done reading that, then they can get started with additional things and start watching some of the videos that we've recorded that explain additional concepts. Um, recently, we had a pretty successful idea, which was to record me just building a feature. It was a, a medium, probably a, a small feature basically, and very verbosely explaining everything that I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And people have found that that's a really good way of, of uh, understanding more of the context for the code base and getting introduced to it as well. Interesting. And how do you, where do you put these videos once you record them? Typically we'll do a, a Discord call when we start out and then I'm just going to be doing a screen recording and I just upload my entire screen recording. Typically I'll go through and cut out any moments of silence or moments where we hit an unnecessary dead end because I want to be respectful to the time of people who are watching this. Um, so just cut out little places that aren't worth watching and then upload that to the YouTube channel for Graphite. Typically we leave those videos as unlisted, but then we'll link to them either on our contributor docs on the website or in the necessary or the relevant channels on Discord. Interesting, I see. Um, yeah. We have another another question from, from Pricksheet, which is like, as a developer, if you had to learn about vector graphics today from scratch, what what road will you take? What what arguments will you will you study? Yeah, good question. I would absolutely recommend just building actual art using the actual tools before you attempt to learn the code or the concepts or the math behind them. Um, learn the pen tool. The pen tool is not intuitive, but it is vital to understanding how to do vector graphics. The pen tool is how you make arbitrary curves that can make any shape you want. And I think there's a really cool tool that helps you learn that. It's called, let me find it. It's called the Bezier game. And it's called bezier.method.ac. That's the website. You can also just Google the Bezier game. And Bezier, by the way, is spelled B-E-Z-I-E-R. And Bezier curves are the curves that make up vector graphics. And the pen tool is the tool that allows you to make shapes. So the Bezier game will explain how to um, how to use the pen tool and how to make Bezier curves. And you can basically trace different shapes that it, that it throws at you and learn from that. And then use Graphite, use other tools like Inkscape or Illustrator and um, or uh, Affinity Designer and get a feel for how it's used by the user before you then dive into the actual mathematical concepts. I don't think the mathematical concepts are even that complex. You just need to learn the math behind Bezier curves and the structure of Bezier curves. But beyond that, anything you're doing might be rather specific. Like if you, yeah, uh, I don't think that, that, it's necessarily that's also that complex the, beyond that. There is also the difference between Bezier curves and Bezier splines. And 
with splines, there's a bit more math involved because you need the yeah. You know, the well, splines there are, there are and... <laughs> there are hundreds yeah. of types of splines that exist, but in vector graphics yeah. we tend to use none of them, at least as the primitives. You might use them as a tool, but, but I not mean, as splines is just connecting different like uh, primitives together. And um, for me, to give you a kind of different perspective. Um, I do have the math background because of my like university education. Also, we noticed that the um, German computer science education is a lot more math heavy than the American one. And we did cover all the all of those fundamentals, like the different how you construct the Bezier splines using the Bezier functions, how you can compute the matrices, and do this sort of more in depth stuff. And at some point, you will. But if you're not formally educated, you will run into issues where you just have math and you don't know what to do. So that's why it's always helpful to also be able to ask people with the more formal background because through that interaction and through the discussions, you can solve the issues and the problems. But yeah, that's also part of it. Yeah, there is also, for people wanting to learn about the math behind Bezier curves, there is an incredible resource called A Primer on Bezier Curves. If you Google that, it's by someone named Pomax, and he has written this truly indispensable resource on everything you could need to know about the math behind Bezier curves and the way that you can manipulate different curves and different splines to generate different shapes. Um, so if you look up, uh, if you look this up, A Primer on Bezier Curves, this is a fantastic guide. I also really love the writing style because it sort of mixes between very uh, it mixes between interactive demos and code and descriptions and a little bit of math all together in a way that's very very digestible to someone who doesn't want to just read basically a purely a textbook full of crazy equations. It definitely will have them, but it will explain how they relate to things and it'll give you code as well. Great, thank you. Yeah, these are all the questions I had. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about graphite or any arguments we touched. Uh, I think we didn't talk too much about the distributed systems part. Do you want to talk about that, Dennis? Yeah, I'm. It's. I mean, it's. In the end, uh, the distributed systems part is mostly, um, as I said, an emergent property of the note of the graphing language, <laughs> and that's sort of not really we well we will of course develop solutions for that but if someone decides that they want to use a different distributed runtime or use something special to add support for a different cloud provider for example to execute CPU execute compute on that cloud provider they could just implement that themselves it's not really we don't have to implement that for yeah, the feature to be basically available. The core principle behind the design of the graphene language is that the language is extremely lightweight and we bootstrap most of the actual functionality upon itself yeah. by writing most of the functionality out of nodes that are like really low level nodes and then we sort of combine those together to make medium level nodes and then uh, medium you know medium depth of complexity and then we eventually get up to the high level nodes that the user will interact with yeah like it's we, have very... a, we have a multi-level intermediate representation. Yeah. In compiler speak. Nice. Yeah, it's very composable. As that's what that's my understanding. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Great. 
like thank you for being here it was a pleasure uh what are your contacts if people want to talk to you like maybe provide both your contacts and the graphite one uh yeah i think the easiest way to get in touch with both of us is to message us on the graphite discord channel so just send us a message by pinging us um my name is just kevin on the discord and dennis's is named true doctor um, you can also get in touch through the contact section of the Graphite website. There is an email listed there. It's, I believe, contact.graphite.rs. Uh, and then if you want to send just me an email in general, it's kevin at kevin.com. Yeah. And for me, it's dennis at COVID.dev, but that's also linked on the GitHub profile. So you can go from there. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I learned a lot during this conversation. It was really <laughs> interesting. So. Thank you for... Uh... Yes, this has been a pleasure. It's been awesome to actually just discuss all these different topics because yeah. uh, graphite is so many things and it's very frequent that I forget entire parts of what graphite even is because I'm thinking <laughs> about other parts. <laughs> Great. So maybe you can also link this interview in your uh, contributing resources. Who knows? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. Then thank you. And yeah, um, I always forgot about this, but like if you're listening and you enjoy Last Ship, make sure to subscribe to YouTube. It's also available on your favorite podcast client. So yeah, definitely follow me and uh, Graphite on all uh, on your favorite social media. Okay, thanks yes, everyone. We also have uh, we also have on the website an email list that you can subscribe to. We have mm -hmm. not actually sent any emails yet, but we're planning to eventually send one about once every quarter. Okay, so it's not spammy. Okay, great. Definitely yeah. not. <laughs> it requires effort on my part to send emails, and therefore it's going to be infrequent. Right. Then thank you again, uh, Kivun and Danis. And yes, thank you, Marco. Yeah. Hi, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye.